Good evening, dear yogis. This sounds very loud to me. Does it sound very loud to you? No. Okay. Hmm. So tonight I'm going to talk about craving, aversion, and if I have time, delusion. (laughs) It's a lot to cover, so we will see. Um, As I said the first night for the Buddhist geeks, um, we're going to be talking about dependent origination, which are these beautiful teachings of the Buddha, describes 12 uh, steps that lead to the creation of suffering and the strengthening uh, of the sense of an isolated self, which is the same thing. And uh, I'm not going through all 12 steps. Uh, The first few we're going to skip, and we're going to start where it gets juicy. (laughs) So basically, we're going to be covering kind of the middle steps. And so um, where we're going to enter is uh, where we come upon uh, having a body and a mind. Uh, The six senses, right, that we've been talking about hearing Smelling, tasting, seeing, feeling the body. Did I get them all (laughs) in the mind? The mind door, right? So that's that's where we're at. And uh, then what happens is there's contact. I'm kind of reviewing what you heard last night. So so hearing happens, seeing happens, smelling happens, tasting happens, feeling something in the body happens. Or some mind activity happens. That's called contact. That's a moment of life. A moment of sense experience happens. That sense experience um, has an an impact, a first impression, a visceral impression called the feeling tone. So we experience this uh, sense experience, this moment of contact, um, as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then, the, as Bonnie was talking this morning, the, you know, the wide range within each one of those. And then, um, if we're not mindful, we get pushed. I love this word Bonnie used this morning. We get pushed into reactivity. The feeling tone um, pushes us into uh, various states of suffering. So if it's pleasant, we, without mindfulness, we try to hold on to it. We try to keep it. It's a state of contraction. We contract around what's happening. And if it's unpleasant, we try to get rid of it, push against it. And again, that's a state of suffering. And if it's neutral, we don't really care about it. We space out, and um, in our space out, we perpetuate what's called delusion in Buddhism, meaning we go around our usual business of seeing the world through our, our conditioned patterns and not seeing it as it is, because we're not paying attention. <laughs> so as you can see, these these reactions that we have, if we are not mindful, are the, what are called the three roots of suffering in Buddhism. All the forms of wanting, craving, aversion, and delusion. 
the three things I'm going to talk about tonight. So I'm moving us along, right? We start with it like grounding in the body, getting to our sense experience. Then we notice the Vedana, the feeling tone of that experience. And now we're going to look at um, the reactivity that typically follows. But not necessarily. <laughs> with mindfulness, we have some hope of breaking this chain. So it's a chain of dependent origination. There's this chain. You know, one thing leads to the next. And uh, right now, you know, we've arrived at craving, aversion, or um, delusion. And then if we're not paying attention to these arisings, they solidify more and more and more into a sense of a separate, isolated self, which are the later um, steps of this uh, this teaching, but we're going to stick mostly to sense contact, Vedna, and the reactivity, and look at how they work together. So the Buddha taught about this, and it was so important because right here is where we have a chance for freedom. Right here is where we have a chance to break our conditioning that leads to suffering. So with mindfulness, there's the possibility that we might connect with the feeling tone and drop all the drama that we follow it with. <laughs> so I'm going to tell a story. The first time that I realized this, it was so made such an impression that even though it was decades ago, I still remember it. So I was sitting in the meditation hall going about my business, having a very nice concentrated sitting. And um, they started mowing the lawn outside the, the meditation hall. And um, I got quite reactive, I, aversive. Why are they mowing the lawn during a meditation period? Can't they do it during the walking period? Don't they know we're trying to concentrate in here? My sitting was going well, now it's not going well, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, lots of aversion. So I, I, I had a little talking with myself. I said, let's pay attention here. Okay, so hearing, there was sense contact at the ear door. There was hearing. It was experienced as unpleasant. And then aversion followed. And all the drama, right, of aversion and the suffering of aversion. So I looked at those, <laughs> that, that chain, and then I was like, oh, it's just unpleasant. Like we can stop right there. The rest is, is an add-on. And, um, and it was so liberating to see that unpleasant doesn't necessarily have to be followed with aversion. Before we practice, they seem married. Like when you first are observing this, you'll see unpleasant aversion, like there's no gap there. They're the same thing, right? But a gap appeared. And that was freedom. Not to have to be pushed or pushed around, you could say, by uh, my conditioning. And by the way, this conditioning is millennia old. It's like... <laughs> It's very evolutionary. It's very much based in our evolutionary biology. So we're asking, actually, we're asking ourselves to take an evolutionary leap. So it, 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 that's why it's so hard. 
So, so one place there's this possibility of breaking the chain is the feeling tone. If you miss the feeling tone, if you can't do it there, you get a second chance. And the second chance is by meeting that reactivity with mindfulness. And um, you could say with mindfulness, there's the opportunity to disempower craving, aversion, and delusion. They have a lot of power over us, right? We get pushed around by them, but we have the chance to see through them, you could say. I see some frowns. Don't worry, the whole talk's about that, so we'll get to it. <laughs> um, but we have a chance to see through um, craving, aversion, and delusion and free the mind in that way. These forces of greed, hatred, and our greed, aversion, and delusion are such a big part of our life that we want to get to know them very intimately. I'm not sure you had that in mind when you signed up here that you were going to do an investigation into greed, hatred, or greed, aversion, and delusion, but that's a huge part of our practice for most of us. And what we want to do is to really understand their nature so that they lose their power to hypnotize us, to hijack us, right? They hijack us, basically. Grasping comes along, and we kind of lose our minds and get lost in this um, vortex of wanting. We get hypnotized. And so we learn how to dehypnotize ourselves, how to come out of the trance, you could say, of these mind states. And that's another way that we can experience um, freedom. Another way we can look at what we're doing is through the um, framework of the four foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha loved lists. If you haven't already noticed that, you, you will, right? Lots of lists. First foundation where we pay attention with mindfulness is the body. The second is feeling tone. And then the third is mind states or heart states or emotions. Kind of, we can mix them all up. And that's where we're headed uh, tonight. Especially tonight, we're going to look at afflictive mind states. Afflictive mind states are the ones that cause suffering. Mind states, emotions. And uh, we'll get to the more beneficial ones. The more... Um, uh, beautiful mind states. Well, we have gotten to them a little bit. Uh, compassion and metta are examples of, of beautiful mind states. Let's start with uh, craving, <laughs> the first of these three. Years ago, I taught regularly at a meditation center in Washington State. And because I live across the country, I would arrive a day early and um, have a rest day on the day the retreat opened. And the staff and I had this um, tradition that we would uh, bake brownies that day for us, and then we share them with the yogis too. 
And these were not just regular brownies. We would make um, Ghirardelli brownies, like really, really good brownies. <laughs> How many people are experiencing craving at the moment? <laughs> and I, I loved them. I, was, I loved chocolate, and I was kind of addicted to these brownies. So one time I took a brownie, and um, I was taking it back to my, my little uh, place I was staying, and I was going to eat it later. Um, but I'm walking along the path, and before you know it, I've eaten the brownie, right? Pleasantness led to craving, led to action. <laughs> and um, I was really uh, kind of astounded that I had been bested by a brownie. And so I decided the next day I was going to do the same thing, but with mindfulness. So the next day, I take my brownie, I'm walking towards my cabin, and I watch this desire to eat the brownie arise, right? The craving, desire. And it comes up as this kind of intense energy. There's like a burning sensation and a tightening in my solar plexus. And I was certain I must eat that brownie. If I didn't eat that brownie, I might die. <laughs> and if I ate that brownie, I would be happy and satisfied probably for the rest of my life. <laughs> I mean, underneath, this are the stories that craving tells us, right? If we really listen. And um, I was mindful, so I would watch this energy kind of peak, and then it would uh, go down. And then it would start all over again. Same story. You've got to eat that brownie. You're going to die if you don't eat that brownie. And, and it up, 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 and it dissipated. And each time I attended to it with mindfulness. And I didn't eat the brownie. <laughs> mindfulness gave me choice. Mindfulness broke the chain of conditioning. I felt empowered because this time I was not bested by the brownie. <laughs> so craving, um, wanting, all the different, there's just a whole spectrum of words that we use. We can start with preference, then wanting, desire, craving, grasping, clinging, attachment. You've probably heard all these words in Buddhism. Coveting, lust, all the nuances of the ways that we lean towards what's pleasant and try to obtain and keep it. I once asked a, a scholar monk, um, Analio, some of you have heard of him, whether it was important to be precise about which word is used. Like if we're trying to translate from the Buddha's teachings, there's all these words. Is it important to be precise? And he said, nope. What's important is the amount of suffering present. That's a good answer, right? So we find that the suffering, you know, gets more and more tight around wanting. That's the later stages in dependent origination. So we live in a culture that glorifies desire. So we're, it's interesting that we're taking a different kind of stance here. Once I saw on um, a website, Honda, I have a Honda, it said something new to crave, crave.honda.org. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's always McRibs, the simple joy of, of obsession. 
The simple joy of obsession. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so, so, so there is this kind of conventional understanding that wanting is, is pleasant, right? If we don't really think about it. Um, but here we undertake an exploration to see if that's actually true. Here we take the stance that we want to resist the seduction of the object and turn towards the wanting itself and investigate how is this experience. And through that investigation, um, empower ourselves to have choice. Free ourselves from this automatic conditioning that what is pleasant must be grasped at. So I, um, I think of desire and wanting as a protection from accepting the true nature of reality. I think of it as a control strategy. I think last night Christine used that word. It's our control strategy. Desire always arises with delusion. The basic delusion the basic belief that things have permanency and can give us ultimate satisfaction. That's the delusion and protection and control strategy of desire. My friend Amanda, one time I was teaching with her and I was um, talking about clinging that night and she just says so honestly, I like clinging. It makes me feel better, kind of. <laughs> I love the kind of that got added on, you know. <laughs> That's kind of the crux of the matter. We do kind of like clinging because we think we can control the world. We would like to do that. But, but, what is the state of our heart and our mind when clinging's present? Are we free? Or are we suffering? So we get seduced by the pleasantness, entranced by the object and its alleged ability to satisfy us, and then we don't see the drawbacks like impermanence, (laughs) like it won't last, like our hearts... um, when we're caught in grasping our um, limited. And, and, and that sense of self grows strong, right? And then we're, we're separated, actually. Grasping separates us from what we want rather than brings us closer because we get, um, it shields the heart. Grasping shields the heart, contracts the heart. It also makes us quite restless. We want and we want. We keep wanting. We keep looking for that next thing that will do it. Right? The Buddha describes sense desire as being stuck in debt and never able to pay it off, which is an apt metaphor so many centuries later.
So in the sutras, uh, often the energy of meeting sense desire is very active, very yang in tone. Like, you know, we battle with sense desire and we cut it off with a sword. And, um, it, you know, it's, it can be quite uh, forceful. And sometimes this is a good idea when desire is present. For example, addictions. We might have to muster up that, that energy that says, no, we're not going there. Anytime desire might overwhelm us and get us to act in ways that are unskillful, no, we might have to kind of bring that yang energy to the forefront. To support our commitment, we might even have to move away from the desired object. I don't keep dark chocolate-covered almonds in the house because I can't resist them. (laughs) If they're not around, I can't eat them. (laughs) But from a more yin paradigm, we bring a softer, more receptive energy. Rather than battle with sense desire, we get to know it intimately and thoroughly transforming its power through mindfulness. So when we have the energy and the capacity, we turn towards desire with mindfulness and we get acquainted with it. How do we experience it in the body? How do we experience it in the heart and the mind? Maybe what beliefs, like I'm going to die if I don't eat the brownie, what beliefs... Are, are under there. We don't go digging for them, but sometimes they become apparent if we're paying attention. Can we feel the trance-like nature of wanting? Can we also notice that wanting is very selective in its focus? It just focuses on what's pleasant and ignores other information. Can we bear wanting? We actually learn to live through it. We don't have to follow its dictates. Temple, um, I I used to be on Facebook. I'm not anymore, but I was. And Temple sometimes would post these great, great things. He has a very quirky mind, and um, it's quite delightful. (laughs) So he posted, I asked him about this, he doesn't remember it, but he posted this video of this um, young child, maybe four years old, kind of having an argument with her mom. And the, the girl's like, I want waffles for dinner. And the mom's like, no, you can't have waffles for dinner. And the girl's like, I want waffles. And... And the mom says, no, we had waffles for breakfast and we had waffles for dinner yesterday, so we're not having waffles for dinner tonight. And she's like, but I want waffles. And then she says, I can't stop thinking about waffles. (laughs) And then she says, why can't I stop thinking about waffles? (laughs) And then Temple writes underneath, I think she's about to have a breakthrough around craving. She can't stop thinking about waffles because that's what craving is like. It's, it's, it, you know, it focuses all your energy right where... Um, and we, we all have a mind like that. 
<laughs> so we sit through the arising and passing away of wanting. We stop feeding it. We quit putting wood on the bonfire. <laughs> you know, we quit like uh, getting lost in the story and come to the body. It gives us some hope. And every time we think, we put another log on the fire of wanting, right? We come back. And we start to um, see that as we can do this, wanting starts to, it, it loses its power. It starts to become more transparent, less opaque. A friend of mine named Susan, a teacher friend, she, she described it like poking holes in a cloth. Each time you poke the cloth with a moment of mindfulness, it doesn't seem like much is happening, but after a while you can start seeing through the cloth. It's not so dense. It's not so opaque. So we start seeing through desire. We start seeing its false promises. We start seeing its um, just a mind state arises because of conditions, contact, pleasantness. It arises and that it, it ends. And so we start to experience some flexibility and some freedom in response to desire. And when desire arises, we know it so well, we can say, hello, my old friend, how are you today? <laughs> we have space. In the Buddhist sutras, Mara, I think we might have mentioned Mara. Mara's like trickster coyote, likes to trick practitioners, and um, he likes to mess with them. And so in many stories, Mara approaches a monk or a nun, usually practicing in the forest under a foot of a tree. And Mara says some version of, what are you doing? This is crazy. You should be having fun. Go after some sense pleasures. This isn't leading anywhere. Some of you may have heard Mara. Um, and the game always changes when the monk or nun says, Mara, I see you. And then it, the story often ends with Mara sitting um, dejected, playing in the dirt with a stick. <laughs> it's like, ah, I've been seen. I don't have power anymore. And we can, you know, look at the desire the same way. When we see it clearly, it loses some of its power. We can even learn to laugh at it. <laughs> One time, I remember many years ago, I went out to, um, I took my goddaughters out for a shared hot sun, fudge Sunday. I think we decided we were just, we were just going to get one. And so when the Sunday arrived, I like chocolate, right? <laughs> so I, I took my spoon and I found without even thinking about it that I was pushing my goddaughter's spoons <laughs> out of the way so that I could get some more hot fudge, right? <laughs> and um, we laughed and laughed. They still comment on it occasionally. <laughs> but but I, I thought it was funny. You know, it's like, oh, look at what the mind can do. 
we start not taking these um, energies so personally. That's part of what happens when they become disempowered. We recognize them as just part of being human. It's not that I'm a bad person because I pushed my goddaughter's spoons out of the way. It's that desire overcame me, right? So just try to keep that perspective if you can, that it's not, it's ours to deal with, but it's not so personal. Every single person in this room deals with wanting, craving. Everyone has the same struggles that you do. Some of them might be a little more intense struggles, less intense struggles, but the same basic format that I just put out is true for everybody in this room, including me. Well, I better move on because I'm not going to get to delusion. That's pretty clear. <laughs> I knew that would happen. So aversion. Aversion is my favorite. <laughs> Love aversion. <laughs> We tend to major in one of these three, and I major in aversion for sure. So many years ago, I traveled to Burma for a three-week meditation retreat in the Sagain Hills, the upper, um, the uh, a region in Burma, like the Buddhist heart of Burma in upper Burma near Mandalay. And uh, it's just this incredible area with many monasteries, like 600 monasteries and pagodas in like a three-mile, square-mile area. Temple's also been there. And um, I went there because I wanted practice to be harder. You know, in the United States, it was getting to feel just a little too easy. I could control circumstances pretty much. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to be stretched and... Um, I have a very sensitive body that's easily impacted by the environment. So I traveled with some trepidation, but a lot of courage. I was up for this. And um, I arrive at the monastery, and we each get our little hut called a kuti on the banks of the Irrawaddy River. Rustic, but we each get our own little hut. So they took me to my hut, and I immediately noticed that it smelled like mothballs, and I'm allergic to mothballs. So then we noticed that the mothballs were in this great big cabinet. So we carried the cabinet out to the porch, but then I pulled my bag while I was carrying the cabinet. And then after that, I went to the new meditation hall, just completed, and they just put a fresh coat of oil-based cement floor paint in the entire hall, to which I'm also allergic. <laughs> And then, um, you know, I noticed at my little cootie, you know, the smell of all the wood fires coming up from the village. And um, I, I, I thought I had asthma then. It was something else. But anyway, that, that was upsetting. <laughs> and then the first night, um, there was this massive ordination and uh, a huge uh, village-wide party to celebrate it. And when they celebrate in Burma... Um, the kind thing to do is to blast all the speeches and all the music um, with these huge loudspeakers so the whole village can enjoy the festivities all night long. <laughs> I, sometimes they take a break between 2 and 4 a.m. I freaked out. <laughs> I panicked. I was like, oh, my God. 
this is all on the first day, right? I'm like, I'm not going to survive this. On top of it, it was five plane tickets to get home and no internet service. And so I wasn't going to really be able to change my tickets. I was stuck. And so I had a little talking with myself. I said, okay, if this three weeks is about learning about panic, sign me up. That's what I'm going to do. And I got really interested in panic, a form of aversion, an extreme form of aversion, right? Um, I started to learn how to surf panic. You know, it's like a good metaphor for California, right? <laughs> so it's like panic goes up, it goes, you can go up with it, and then, and then you can go up with it. And so I learned how to kind of just go with the energy up and down. And then I learned, you know, to notice a catastrophic thinking and uh, just not engage with it. And um, the unpleasant body sensations, I started to really, they were unpleasant, but I started to see, can I, can I hold this unpleasantness? Can it just be unpleasant? It was a great retreat. I learned so much about panic. I learned that I could do panic, that that would be okay. You know, so we all have our thing, right? And what we can learn on a meditation, I bet you didn't think you were signing up for this, right? What we can learn on a meditation retreat is that we can deal, that we can deal with what our personal, um, our personal forms of, of grasping our aversion are. That we can make space in our hearts and our minds to hold this without it dominating us. That we don't have to be hijacked by our own heart and mind. So, aversion, many different forms, all the forms of pushing away against experience. Not wanting, hating, fury, terror, panic, ill will, hatred, disgust, judgment, anger, annoyance, and sadness, just to name a few. In Pali, the word aversion means striking against. It's like, right? One time in my practice, I made a list of all the fears that I had explored in my practice, and I came up with 24 different kinds. Then once I had fear, kind of felt like I could do it pretty well. Then I started on anger, and I came up with 24 kinds of anger, too. Intimacy. That's how well we get to know each ourselves. That's how well we get to know our experience. So an aversion, aversion has its own delusions, right? It tells us that um, this experience is to blame for my unhappiness, and if I get rid of it, my problems will all be solved. Or aversion tells us we can't tolerate what's happening, so we have to get rid of it. And an aversive mind state convinces us that this unbearable experience is going to last forever. So therefore, we must control and eliminate it. It's amazing, right? When you're caught in like fear, 
you're convinced you're going to be afraid the rest of your life. That's like the delusion that's there. I mean, obviously, we know it's not true, but when you're caught, it seems true, seems reasonable. <laughs> so we start to explore um, this conditioning. It's a protective strategy again, a control strategy. It tries to shield us from the truth that we can't control things. Unpleasant experiences arise whether we like it or not, and we have to bear them. We kind of like aversion. (laughs) It feels a protective. I once told a group, I said, I like hatred. They all looked at me a little shocked. But there's a way that if we really explore hatred, it's like an impenetrable shield. It's like, you can't get me. There's no way you can get me. I am. You know, it's hard. The heart is hard as a rock, right? And it's like, It shields the heart. It offers protection. But, kinda, (laughs) the price, right? The price. We have a hard heart. And that hard heart separates us from fundamental belonging, our deepest wish. Belonging with others, belonging on the planet, belonging on the earth. And so when we work with aversion, we start to risk softening. Letting the heart start to maybe just soften, get a bit vulnerable. Because we want to be here. We want be connected, alive, right? A hard heart is not alive. And so we start to to experiment. And this place allows us, actually, this is a great place to experiment because it's so protected, right? And you will find over the week that your heart, at times, is willing to be vulnerable. It's willing to relax and soften. Beautiful. And again, just as with desire, we can play with aversion. We can start to have some fun. We can start to understand that it's not who we are. It's a mind state. It's impermanent. It arises. It passes away. It's conditioned. One time when I was on retreat a couple of years ago, I would do my chanting meditation in the morning at 7.30. And on Tuesdays, the um, leaf blower crew would show up right underneath my window. I tend to get aversive towards leaf blowers, and, um, <laughs> and I knew that this could happen, and I did not want that to be my experience, right? That was not what I was looking for, an aversive and hard heart. 
And so I started to play with the sound of the uh, leaf blowers. And um, I found that actually um, I could connect with the sound of the leaf blowers and that I could harmonize my chanting with the tone of the leaf blowers. <laughs> what we can see is that we don't have to oppose what we don't like. <laughs> we can do some Aikido. We can join. We can learn how to move with this world rather than striking against it, right? And, and as we start to see through aversion, it starts to be not so opaque and more transparent. We have that, that option. We have the flexibility. We can cooperate wholeheartedly with what the universe sends us. That's belonging when we can do that. That's connection. Ajahn Chah, um, the Thai forest master, said he was recommending playing with anger. He says, you can time how long you're angry and then see if you can beat your time tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, you can time it with your friends and see who can, (laughs) you know, just like lightness, right? We can start to not get to, you know, to lighten up. We know our practice is mature when we stop complaining about life. Many of you know the Tibetan teacher Anam Thupten. He said, freedom is the end of whining. (laughs) And most of us control how much whining we do to other people once we get over four years old. Um, But what about the whining in our own hearts, right? What would it be like to quit complaining about life? That's freedom. There's this Buddhist story where a disciple who's seeking peace approaches a master named Sono, and she instructs him, no matter what happens, to say, thanks for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. And as we tame aversive mind states, we can increasingly live from this receptive space of no complaints whatsoever. So I only have a few minutes to talk about delusion, but I will say a couple of things. So uh, as we said, um, when the experience lands as us as neutral, we tend to be like, eh, nothing juicy there. And we tend to space out. We're not so interested. And then um, that gives a chance for delusion to uh, take hold. And delusion is when the, in in Buddhism, delusion is when um, the mind and heart are uh, dulled and muddled and can't see clearly. So delusion means that we're not seeing clearly the way the world is. There's a dullness in the mind, a muddledness, a skeptical thought. Sometimes it's endless skeptical thought or confusion. Delusion became clear to me recently regarding climate change and living in the Northeast. I secretly carried the hope and belief that perhaps we in the Northeast might not suffer too much from climate change. It's not too hot. We have water, 
and we haven't had trouble with wildfires. But after several episodes this summer of intense toxic smoke from the Canadian wildfires, followed by torrential rains that caused flooding and washing out of roads in, in my town, the truth of reality poked through. And it was so interesting because many, I, I talked to a number of people about this and they all said that the same thing had happened to them, that there'd been this delusion, protective, right? Delusion sees reality as we want to see it. So I wanted to see reality that way. The only problem is reality wins, <laughs> like it pokes through, right? Delusion is convenient, but it's not in touch with reality. And so what we're trying to do with our practice is to um, get in touch with reality. We're trying to relax what we think we know and see, move closer to see things as they are, not as we think they are. to cut through our tendency to perceive reality out of old conditioning and desires. The body's very helpful for this. The mind makes, oh, the mind's slippery. The stuff it makes up. Every single one of you today, I'm sure, your mind made up some crazy stuff. (laughs) But we come to the body where we see the truth of reality, the truth of impermanence, the truth of unsatisfactoriness and the truth of not-self, which we'll get into more later. The poet T.S. Eliot said, most people can't handle too much reality. (laughs) And it's true, reality is hard to deal with. Life isn't a picnic. It's wild, unpredictable, uncontrollable. Pema Chodron said, the truth is inconvenient. And we would prefer convenience. We like delusion. It gives us opportunity, um, the comfort of living in a convenient uh, bubble. But it has a price, like the other, um, like desire and aversion. It saps our vitality. It takes a lot of energy. And getting more in touch with the way things are revitalizes us. Some of you might have had this experience where something's kind of bothering you, you're kind of trying to keep it at bay, delusion. (laughs) And then finally this emotion uh, comes through. And there's such a relief, like energy gets released because you're no longer trying to hold that at bay. That's the truth, the energy and the vitality of truth that it um, energizes us. All right, I think I'm going to have to end. So we have these three ways of um, protecting the heart desire, aversion, and delusion. And um, we're getting to know them very intimately, very close. Very um, intuitively, like Bonnie said, we're not thinking about them, we're living them, 
We're getting to know the experience itself. And as we do that, um, they lose their power. We're not so easily hijacked. We have more choice. We have more space and flexibility. This is all the good news. I told you a lot of the bad news. This is all the good news, right? And um, we start to feel this uh, integration of body, heart, and mind. And as these mind states start to, they start to kind of lose their density, dissolve, different ways you can say it. Our natural uh, mind states of calm and peace, love, compassion, equanimity, start to be able to um, come more to the forefront, start to, to, to strengthen and shine through. So these beautiful mind states can come forward. And there you go. That's the, um, the juicy part of the dependent origination teachings that we have the opportunity to free the heart and mind with Vedana, feeling tone, and we have the opportunity to free the heart and mind through intimacy, intimate knowing of desire, aversion, and delusion. Let's sit for a minute. So if there's anything that you resonated with, you can kind of bookmark that. Anything that seemed important and helpful for you right now. And then the rest of the words, let them float away. No need to hang on. Coming back to this body, sitting here, contact with the earth, contact with our own experience, just as it is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.